DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, we'll hear about how illegal gold mining is causing disease to spread in the Amazon. Our country used to be a healthy place, full of beauty, until the gold miners came. We'll also visit a restaurant in Switzerland that's serving up gourmet food for a good cause. The base of this is dignity. It's social inclusion, it's dignity, it's nutrition, human rights. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're looking at problem solving at the community level. We begin in Brazil, where illegal gold mining is leading to the spread of disease among the indigenous Yanomami population, and the Yanomami are refusing to take it lying down. Inika Mules has this report from Anna Herberg. Children with swollen, hungry bellies and prominent ribs. Men and women emaciated to their skeletons their big eyes staring blankly into the camera. These are the shocking images emerging from a country that is one of the largest food producers on Earth. In the past, none of this existed. Our country used to be a healthy place, full of beauty, until the gold miners came. Mining has contaminated the water and brought malaria, which kills us. And they brought hunger. Children lose their parents, become ill, and can no longer search for food. I feel my soul crying. The shaman's soul is sad and angry because I am Yanomami. I am the leader of my Yanomami people. Davi Kopanawa is the best-known voice of the indigenous Yanomami people, a community of 35,000 living deep in the Amazon rainforest in an area the size of Switzerland on the border with Venezuela. We reached the shaman via a video call in New York, where he has opened an exhibition drawing attention to the humanitarian catastrophe brought about by illegal gold miners in the protected indigenous area. 20,000 intruders are said to have spread across the reserve. They pollute the environment, threaten the Yanomami, and destroy the social fabric of the indigenous community, says Estavo Senna. He's from the non-governmental organization Instituto Ambiental, which has been working with the Yanomami for years. Between 2020 and 2021, there were more than 40,000 cases of malaria in a population of 30,000 people. 570 children up to the age of five died from preventable diseases such as diarrhea and pneumonia. This is a consequence of illegal mining, which introduces diseases via the water. The camps are also breeding grounds for mosquitoes. And on top of this, the state health system has been dismantled in recent years. The Yanomami sounded the alarm repeatedly. But the government of former president, Jair Bolsonaro, ignored more than 20 requests for help. What's more... Bolsonaro actively encouraged gold miners in the area, repeatedly declaring that he also wanted to open up the reserves to economic exploitation, especially the land of the Yanomami. Bolsonaro is now under investigation for failure to provide assistance, embezzlement of public funds and environmental destruction. His government has mistreated our people. Jaya Bolsonaro is genocidal. He killed the water, the forest, the fish and our children. 
The gold miners come as if our land were their property. But the prospectors are also exploited by men who have money and power. The rich ones are those who own the plain, and the gold businesses, who trade in the gold which is covered in the blood of my people. Behind the gold mining in the Amazon are the investors. A whole mafia, says Danicle de Aguirre from Greenpeace Brazil. There are now runways in the protected areas, as well as settlements with bars and brothels, gasoline, food and weapons. During a recent flyover, Greenpeace discovered a 120-kilometre road that brings heavy equipment like excavators and pumps into the area. Once they're finished churning up the earth, what remains is a crater-like landscape, contaminated with mercury, which is used to separate the gold from the river mud. There are studies that show much of the gold exported from Brazil was mined illegally, especially in the three indigenous protected areas, including that of Yanomami. This gold goes to Canada, to Europe, to India. The international community must take urgent action against this. For example, the EU urgently needs to classify the Amazon as a risk zone. It's not enough to just send aid money. We also need internationally binding rules. Now Brazil's new government has launched what has been branded a major security operation to root out the illegal miners. Brazil's new president, Lula da Silva, met with indigenous representatives and his government sent in health workers and evacuated the sick. But David Kopenawa is skeptical that the operation will prove a success. Gold miners have already been expelled from the region once, and they still manage to return. I've been mistrustful since I was little, because I saw what happened to my people. I know President Lula, but I won't believe his words until all of the gold diggers have been driven out. That's what I'm waiting for. I also want him to build a surveillance house on our territory, so that the prospectors do not return. This will require more than a military operation, says Danicle de Aguirre of Greenpeace. Behind illegal mining, a social drama is also playing out. The Amazon will need a new economic agenda, which relies on the forest's bioeconomy instead of pure destruction. That report from Anne Herberg, presented by Inika Mules. Environmental problems are also spurring on some communities in India to take matters into their own hands. Take the city of Coimbatore, located in the far south, for example. There, drought has caused sources of water to dry up. One local man, though, has found a way to bring back the water with the help of a band of volunteers. Reporters Ganasanaparna and Tuin Menon have more. Their report is presented by Evelyn McClafferty. Aerial drone shots reveal mounds of trash, both in a water tank and on its banks in the Indian city of Coimbatore, which is in the state of Tamil Nadu. The rubbish is juxtaposed with lush green growth, including water lilies and towering above palm trees as far as the eye can see. People are proud of their home here 
and keeping it clean has become a priority. We've had 25 to 30,000 volunteers who've worked with us directly. People are keen to make a positive contribution to society. The Hat Party is organizing it. That's Mani Kandan, the founder of the Indian NGO Kave Kolangal, Pasukapu Amaipo. He's a young man, fresh-faced and eager, wearing a light blue polo shirt and a pair of casual jeans. He sits on the ground in the forest, almost in a legs-crossed yoga position, and he's not wearing shoes. He tells us about his NGO and how volunteers have been restoring water bodies, ridding it of plastic, old clothing, everything you can think of really, and this is how they do it. Suresh, who's in his early 40s and wearing a purple shirt, has been a volunteer with the NGO since the beginning. When volunteers arrive by bus at the scene of the cleanup, he ushers them to where they're supposed to go, telling them to wear protective gear on their hands and to register their names. As the volunteers gather, it's then Manny Camden's job to divide them into various groups. Hello. Hello, you all there wearing gloves. Come this way please. While Abu, another volunteer in a navy t-shirt and wearing protective gloves, hands out large white sacks where the rubbish is collected. <laughs> Meanwhile, Gopi, a young man wearing an army-style t-shirt and using a remote control device to power a drone, is documenting the whole process, everyone's movements and shots of the clean-up both before and after. The group at the back, please come closer. Mani Kandan started the NGO in 2017 when Coimbatore was facing a severe drought. He was determined to revive one of the city's driest water bodies. It was the Perul tank. It hadn't received water for many years. We decided to clean the tank by removing plastics and invasive weeds. We began cleaning activities on the 12th of February 2017. In the first week 50 showed up, but in the weeks after 400 people showed up. In just a month we finished cleaning the tank. We don't have a financial or political background, but we had volunteers who were ready to work with us. So we decided to clean up various water bodies every Sunday. So far we've been working for 249 consecutive Sundays. People wear protective clothing, masks and gloves when cleaning up, and they use rakes to better dig out the heaps of trash collected in the water bodies over the years. There's a hugely jovial and community spirit. Everyone's in it together. The organization has restored four large lakes, nine small ponds, and more. And if you ask Manny Candon which project was hardest, he'll insist on taking you there. Spread across 90 acres, the Velalor tank is one of Coimbatore's oldest. It looks like a small lake and is surrounded by lush green growth and narrow reddish soil paths for people to walk along. The tank is fed by the Noyalor River. For 15 years it remained dry because of three major problems, says Manny Candon. There were lots of invasive weeds here and the canal for water had been blocked. People had encroached on four and a half of the six and a half kilometer long canal on either side of the river banks. And the garbage had been dumped into the dams through which the tanks receive water. These were the three problems. 
Using JCBs and with huge community mobilisation, in 2017, Annie Camden and his team of volunteers began cleaning the tank and its dams. They also played a role in convincing two and a half thousand families settled along the river's banks to relocate to state housing. And then, just like that, for the first time in 17 years, the water and biodiversity returned. And this had rippling effects in nearby villages. People living two kilometres away said just months after the restoration of the Velalore tank, there was an increase in groundwater levels around where they lived because the tank was now retaining the water it was collecting. Two farmers, Najaraj and Subramani, say it's changed their lives. Back in the old days, we only farmed if it rained. If it didn't, we wouldn't farm. Since there is water in the tank, for the past four years, there's been water in our wells. We use a motor to pump out the water for farming. I used to buy 200 to 300 litres of water every day. It's much better now because I can get water whenever I need it at home. My profits have increased as a result. As Manny Candon stands on the banks of the tank, surrounded by green and with birds overhead, he monitors its progress. Once this tank was able to hold water again, it is not only people who have benefited from it and from the groundwater regenerating itself. This tank has now also become a habitat for various species. As butterflies abound and the area teems with life, it's no surprise that it's now its own unique ecosystem. And that's because volunteers at the time went beyond just cleaning the tank. They planted over 10,000 trees of native varieties using the Miyawaki method, a Japanese afforestation technique. This strip of forest protects the water in the tank, along with attracting wildlife to its green zone. Manny Candon is naturally delighted with its progress. I cannot express the joy I had when I saw the tank fill up with water in 2018. We used to water these plants with water from lorries. But shortly after that, we used buckets to transfer the water from the tank for these plants. The volunteers who are sometimes waist-high in plants and green growth, patiently sifting through the trash with their rakes, are mostly mobilised as a result of social media. By sharing its WhatsApp link and posting clean-up dates, the NGO has succeeded in bringing many young people who want to be part of the process together. Gopi, who we heard from earlier with his video skills, is the perfect example. He joined the NGO when he was just a student. Today, he pitches in with his skills as a drone cinematographer. He takes before and after shots. When we are cleaning a particular lake, we choose a position and shoot it before the cleaning, after the cleaning and after the water gets restored. We then present it to the companies looking to fund organisations. At the same time, we show it to government officials. This helps us get access to CSR opportunities and allows us to continue our work with government approval in other locations. And word of mouth seems to have escalated their efforts to new heights, says Mani Kandan. Instead of us approaching people about this, they've now become aware on their own. There is a young boy who volunteers with us. 
If you ask him, what do you want to be when you grow up, he says, like you. I'll go plant trees and save legs. But what will you do for food? He replied, I will go home and eat. We are seeing such positive changes amongst children. Gopi, the cinematographer, says the fact that communities themselves get involved empowers them. When it's organization-driven work, the effects are usually low. But here, since people get their hands dirty, they feel, this is my home, I will keep it clean. It's more effective. The protection of water bodies requires more than just restoration. Increasing encroachment, waste dumping, effluent discharge and lack of proper maintenance by civic bodies are just some of the major problems that many Camden sees. If you pollute near a well in a village, the people will drive you out. But if someone dirties the tank here, nobody raises questions because, unlike the villagers, nobody drinks this water. The government is spending crores of rupees to revive Lexin Coimbatore, but had it made efforts to make that very water consumable, people would begin to care. Mani Kandan has succeeded in uniting people to care about water, and now he has his height set on restoring the Noya River which is the backbone of modern-day Coimbatore, passing through four districts and feeds 25 tanks. But it's under threat. Coimbatore city itself is on the banks of the Noyal River, but we don't drink from it. Instead, we take water from the Bavani or Aliar River. The number of days that water flows through this river is decreasing each day. We want to increase it and that's now what we are working towards. Volunteer organizations like Mani Camden's help spread awareness about the urgent need to save local water bodies. The state of Tamil Nadu, in which Coimbatore is located, has over 200,000 tanks and other irrigation sources, but less than 90,000 of them are in use. It'll take a collective effort from the government and citizens to save water for future generations. Evelyn McClafferty with that report from Ganasanaparna and Tuin Menon. Speaking of water, next week marks World Water Week. To find out more about the topic, be sure to check out our website, www.dw.com backslash environment, and our environment show, Living Planet. We'll be right back after this quick message. Many of our countries are experiencing extreme weather patterns. I think the game is over, you know. Because it's happening more and more, and it's no longer this futuristic, hypothetical thing. You realize that, you know, this isn't a long, slow evolution of change. This is rapid. Living Planet, with Charlie Shield and Sam Baker. Environment stories from around the world. And you can only take so much out of the bank until there's nothing left in the bank. And what did you here? Our monkeys were about to disappear before there were loads. No other animal there steps up to fill its role. They start to then disappear too. We don't even know all the species of wild bees that there are. Once the real ferns die, the last real swamps dry up, will we enter spaces that hold only digital memories of nature? All the disabled people have to be recognized in sustainability usually doesn't happen. I think a Gen Z is pissed, actually. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. Turning now to Switzerland. 
A gourmet restaurant in Geneva is serving up an extra helping of hospitality these days. Everyone is welcome here, and for those who can't afford a hot meal, it's on the house. Katrin Hondel has more. Her report is presented by Anne-Sophie Prentlin. As with most top-tier restaurants, the reservation question comes almost immediately after the friendly welcome at Refettorio. The Salvation Army has made a reservation on his behalf, says an elderly man quietly. He takes a seat at one of the 12 large oval tables, designed by the artist Michelangelo Pistoletto, specifically for the gourmet restaurant in Geneva. Art also hangs on the walls. Those who dine at Refettorio don't just enjoy excellent food, but also the right ambiance. And no one should have to stand in line for this experience, such as the case with soup kitchens or other food outlets for the needy, says Walter El Najar. He's Refettorio's founder and head chef. Ideally, what we do, we try to avoid the queue, which is, uh, you know, at the base of this is dignity. It's social inclusion, it's dignity, it's nutrition, human rights. But queuing is not really into this three, four things. So what we do, we, we pair with other organizations to grant access to the restaurant, but then we leave always like two, three, four tables uh, available for people that is just passing by, because it would be very stupid to don't accept someone because they don't have a ticket, especially if it's someone that obviously is sleeping on the street. Our doors are always open. Lunch at Refettorio costs 36 Swiss francs. The evening guests pay nothing for the same meal. They simply wouldn't be able to afford it otherwise. Although Geneva is considered a rich city, only Monaco has a higher density of millionaires in the world. Every fifth person in Geneva is at risk of poverty, according to official statistics. Many young people, students, are among the approximately 50 guests who came to Refettorio for the free dinner today. One of them is Joseph, an art student. Um, and being a student in Geneva is very expensive. So going out to restaurants is no longer something we do as much as we maybe used to. Um, so having an invitation from La Fast was really cool. It means we can come down and enjoy, enjoy this. Over at the next table, the quiet man sent by the Salvation Army sits next to Sarah, a woman with Peruvian roots, who is supported by Adage, a Geneva-based aid organization, which focuses especially on the elderly in need. This restaurant is wonderful. The food is fantastic. I've already asked about their unique salad dressing recipe, and the atmosphere here is very warm. An open space visible to all is set up in the kitchen in the middle of the restaurant. Two menus are prepared here every evening, one vegetarian and one with meat, just like for the paying guests at lunch and with the same care. Chef Sandro Mitri garnishes wafer-thin sliced veal and various dumplings on large white plates. This is uh, forchetta de veau with uh, the sauce of its own juices and horseradish. And there's going to be an oil of parsley, pickled mustard and fermented uh, mushroom juice. Fermentation is the linchpin of Refettorio's innovative culinary art. Just like in a laboratory, dozens if not hundreds of preserving jars and plastic containers are stored on floor-to-ceiling shelves with, among other things, fish skins, pumpkin seeds, bananas and mustard seeds. What we use fermentation for is to recover food scraps. So that's why it's one of our base. 
Fermentation is used to save food that would otherwise be thrown away, explains Walter El Najar. Leaves or roots of vegetables, for example. Everything that usually ends up in the garbage is transformed into ingredients through fermentation. This is sustainable and gastronomically fantastic, he says. The role model and inspiration for Walter El Najar's experimental cuisine is, among others, the French physical chemist and inventor of molecular gastronomy, Hervé Tiss. His portrait hangs in the restaurant kitchen next to a large green poster with the inscription L'alimentation est politique. Food is political. El Najar describes his avant-garde restaurant as a solidary and social restaurant. All 12 employees receive the same salary as himself. The whole project is supported by a charitable foundation the Mater Fondazione, which is in turn supported by numerous partners and sponsors. And then there are the many volunteers, like Jane, who bolsters the refettorio team on several evenings by folding napkins, cleaning salad or peeling beetroot. And the thing I particularly like is they get the same food as lunchtime, so the same attention is paid, uh, you know, all the pasta's homemade, everything's homemade, they get good service and... Um, you know, there's no difference between who pays and who doesn't pay. And that, says student Joseph, tastes just stunningly good. It's delicious. It's very nice. Absolutely delicious, yeah. Anne-Sophie Brentlin with that report from Katrin Hondel. In Iraq, the ancient instrument known as the oud has a long tradition stretching back thousands of years. But recent political chaos has seen the instrument and its music come under threat. Reporter Tilo Spana has this story of how one oud maker is determined to keep the music going. The round belly of the oud rests on Ahmed's legs. His fingers move nimbly over its narrow neck. Ahmed sits on a small stool. The workshop is sparsely lit and looks more like a small cave, filled with tools, wood and half-finished instruments. Before an oud is sold, Ahmed tries it out. I consider music to be food for the soul. Everyone loves it. I learned it well. The instruments are built by Ahmed's friend, Sinan Samir. His name is painted in red Arabic letters on the door of the workshop. It is hidden in one of Baghdad's countless alleys. Sinan says he learned from his father how to sand and glue the different types of wood. He taught me everything about the oud, everything. As a child, he worked in his father's workshop for the first time. That was almost 30 years ago. His father had always attached importance to skills other than crafting the instrument. He said to me, you have to be a musician to be able to tell one oud from another, just by plucking the string. Researchers from the UK suspect that the first oud-like instrument may have originated around 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, a region in what is now Iraq and Syria. Maybe that's why the oud is known as the king of instruments. With its thick belly, short neck and bent head, the oud resembles the guitar, and yet sounds quite different. Whether in Turkey, Egypt or Yemen, it is played everywhere in the Arab world. 
push off for that. The last few years have not been easy for Sinan. First, the war in Iraq drove him out of the workshop. And then there were repeated problems with religious fanatics, probably supporters of the terrorist militia Islamic State, Sinan says. It's happening more often that they insult me and accuse me of being an infidel. But it's not got anything to do with religion. Even at its greatest extent, the so-called Islamic State terrorist group never reached Baghdad. But experts are certain that there were and still are sympathizers in many places. Then I tell them, you must first prove to me that music is not allowed. There is no prohibition in the Quran, and there is also nothing in the Prophet's traditions that prohibits music. Even though the political situation has eased somewhat, business has not become any easier for the instrument maker. The special wood is currently difficult to obtain, and above all, extremely expensive, Sinan explains. A new government was put in place in Iraq towards the end of 2022, but Sinan says he doesn't expect any support from them because they don't care about art and music. We want to go to the West, to Germany or America, But that's not easy. There, people appreciate such handicraft and art. Here, that isn't the case anymore. But whether in Baghdad or somewhere else in the world, Sinan wants to remain loyal to the oud and the music, whatever happens, despite all the obstacles in his way. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and other reports from World of Progress, you can check us out at DW.com or download the show from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, just drop us a line at worldinprogress at DW.com. This week's show was produced by Vivka Teichtmeier and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Michael Springer. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.